good morning, Missio. I hope you're doing fine this morning and you're nice and awake. We have a lot of Ecclesiastes to read. We're going to start in chapter 6, verse 7, and go to 8 1. So recline in your seat, sip your drink, get comfortable, get engaged, but don't get so comfortable that you fall asleep and miss out on some of this wisdom. So we're going to start in 6 7. Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet the appetite is never satisfied. What advantage have the wise over fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and what humanity is has been known. Who can contend with someone who is stronger? The more the words, the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than the beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do, do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing, and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider these. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about the future. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. The righteous perishing in their righteousness, and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked, and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servants cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, <clears throat> I determined to be wise, but, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? 
So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered, adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things, while I was still searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. This only have I found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. Who is like the wise? Who knows the explanation of things? A person's wisdom brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. Sanderson, thank you very much. We are in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, long passage today, a lot of wisdom, a lot of wisdom to absorb. Are you ready? Buckle up. Um, we've been attuning to this teacher, the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. And um, the focus of the teachers up thoughts up until now has been predominantly on what humans are about in the world. So the teacher's kind of been observing like what happens in the world and what we as humans tend to grasp at to make meaning or significance or purpose or groundedness out of our life. And so grasping, he's talked about how we grasp at pleasure and success and how we grasp for answers to questions that we can't find but like leave us wrestling or that we try to grasp at making ultimate things like relationships and money and work. And he's kind of diagnosed the human condition. That's what he's been doing up until now. And then we get to chapter 6 and verse 12 and the teacher kind of pivots. Instead of looking at humans and what humans are about, the teacher pivots and wants us to take a big look at wisdom. So now we've, we've seen what's going on in the world. I've kind of given you this picture, and now I'm going to pivot over here, and I'm going to ask the same question that I ask in chapter 2 and verse 22, and he brings up this same question. Um, for who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? It's reflective of that question that the teacher asked at the beginning. Who knows what is good for a person's life? What will happen on earth after they're gone? And like I said, now, for the rest of the book, the teacher is asking us or leading us to attune to wisdom as a guide for how we would live our lives. So we've seen what humans are about and what we grasp. Now let's look and lean into proverbial wisdom, which is why, when Jonathan was reading this part, it sounded a lot more like Proverbs, right? So he starts out, a good name is better than fine perfume and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. 
Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to, than to, listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. So he starts out with a picture of wanting us to look at death. And wisdom can't keep us from death, but, but death can teach us how to live wisely. And death, like the teacher says, is associated with mourning, and rightly so. But it is also a time usually where we take stock of life. We go to a funeral. It's where we either take stock of our own lives or we're reminded of the life of the one that has been lost to death. And so the prospect of death can reorder life because it brings to light what is important. When I first moved to Salt Lake City, I had a, hung a picture on my fridge. Um, it was of a woman. Um, a friend of mine, and I left her picture on my fridge for a couple of years. And the reason that she hung on my fridge is because she was warm and intelligent and kind and funny, and she was a really inspiring person to me, and she was my same age. We were both, at the time, I think, 36, right before I moved here. And right before I left, I went to a funeral. She died um, just months before I moved. And the picture that I put on my fridge of her was the picture that was on the card that was given to us as we walked into the celebration of her life. And at the end of the funeral, the end of people telling stories about who she was, she had these, there were flowers everywhere and she loved beauty and she was a physician, and so there was lots of communication about how, where she, how well she tended to people and cared for people. And at the end of the funeral, her husband, also a friend of mine, walked up on stage. He was carrying his little girl, their little girl. Her little girl was between probably like three or four at the time, and carried her up on stage. And when he walked up on stage, he had his back to us. So he's holding his little girl. It's the very end of the funeral. I'm going to try not to cry. And he just talked to his little girl. And he said, called her name, and he said, everybody's here because they loved mummy. And they're here to celebrate her life because they thought she was beautiful and kind and all the things that we think about her too. And then he said, in a minute, so that you understand that, I'm going to turn around and they're all going to clap. They're going to clap as loud as they can. And some of them, if they feel comfortable, they're going to like hoop and holler. And they're going to do that so that you know why everyone's here. Because they loved her. And I want you to remember that. 
And so then he turned around holding his little girl and we did what he asked us to do. We all applauded. <laughs> and then, you know, people started to hoop and holler. And that little girl, she was being held by him. And all of a sudden, like, she got this huge smile on her face and she started to applaud too. Death in earnest, says Soren Kierkegaard, gives life force as nothing else does. It makes one alert as nothing else does. The teacher talks about the laughter of fools, like burning thorns that don't produce heat under a pot. And it's like this temporary gratification and superficial laughter. It's like that. It's like burning thorns underneath a pot. It doesn't produce very much. But there is something that comes from a moment and a round of applause like that. Gratitude for simple things, like a smile, like a walk, like a meal. And at the same time, like an honest, unflinching, or an unflinching honesty about life's pain and risk. The prospect of death can order life because it brings to light what is important, which is why I hung her picture on my fridge. The wise heart can have a sad countenance. The teacher asks us to attune so that we might live wisely. And then he goes on. In this meaningless life of mine, I have been both of these or I've seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked, do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. The whole point of Israel's wisdom tradition is to figure out what is good for humans to do while we live. And wisdom and knowledge are actually neutral, right? You can apply um, wisdom towards good purposes, but you can also apply wisdom and knowledge towards not so good purposes, right? There's this juxtaposition. There's one path that leads one way, and one path that leads the other, but you can use wisdom and knowledge and apply them on these two paths. And there's a lot of biblical language about that. And often the way the biblical language presents these paths is like there's a path and you use wisdom and it leads to life, and there's a path and it can lead to death. Or there's a path that leads to goodness, and then there's also a path that leads to wickedness. 
Oh, there's actions that lead to light and there's actions that lead to darkness. And so there's a way. There's a way toward good and there's a way toward evil. There's a way towards light and there's a way that leads to darkness. Good and evil. But the teacher is like prodding a little at that. It's like, uh, can we just can we just all pause for one little second here? Because verse 15, in this meaningless life of mine, the thing that I have observed is that, you know, the righteous, they die being righteous. And the wicked, sometimes they live a long time in their wickedness. So he's kind of like, yeah, these proverbial adages that are like, yes, if you take this path, it will do this, and that path, and it will do that. It's not really a formula. Wisdom isn't a formula. But we kind of like formulas, don't we? Formulas are like rules and systems that we can follow. We can put our faith in rules and systems, and we can predict outcomes. So when we hear, here the teacher being like, yeah, there aren't really formulas for necessarily determining. There's wisdom and you walk in it, but it doesn't necessarily mean the kinds of outcomes that you would expect. They're not guaranteed outcomes. And for some of us, that can feel a little bit unsettling. Maybe a little frustrating. Or scary. Especially when we hear something like, neither righteousness or wickedness can guarantee anything for human security. You're like, dude, this teacher, he just needs to like find a quiet corner on his own and talk to the wall. But I think maybe now more than ever, perhaps we would be willing to lean into what the teacher is telling us. Coming from the West, we are pretty privileged. Usually we have input that equals output. We live with a certain level of predictability and control. But in this moment with a pandemic and an election and events that led up to an election, maybe it puts us in a place where we would be willing to admit that there's less that is guaranteed than we would think. And so when we lean into these teachers' words and this contradictory thing that's happening that he's naming, his wisdom and insight towards us is don't be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. You might not have these predictable, necessarily, outcomes, but in the midst of that reality, don't be over-righteous, don't be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? But don't be over-wicked, you know? So he says that either of these things are dangerous. So we want to kind of ask how. So let's think about it. How is being too righteous a recipe for disaster? Well, I think if we think about righteousness as like this idea of we could do things perfectly, right? If we think we can do things perfectly, it really is a recipe for self-deception. 
because we would have maybe a sense or a grand sense of ourselves, an overinflated sense of self. Or if we want to live into that kind of expectation, we would have a poor sense of self. Because that is a hard bar to reach, that sense of self-righteousness. I would be able to reach this bar, and this bar would be like, kind of, I'm, I think I'm pretty perfect. You either have inflated sense of self, or you're honestly feeling like you're consistently a failure because you don't feel like you ever measure up. Martin Luther said this when he was talking about this passage of Ecclesiastes. He says, look, I myself am still unrighteous and yet I am tolerated by God and not banished by people. Then why am I carried away with fury that I harshly require of others what I do not achieve myself? Right? Demanding perfection from ourselves leads to despair and shame. And it's just quite simply not human. And demanding perfection out of others makes us critical and harsh and judgmental. And that's not good for others either. And it's just not just Martin Luther who says that. Brené Brown, who's a shame researcher, says this too. Don't be over-righteous is kind of what she says in her book about imperfections. It destroys you. Because we're never good enough for ourselves and other people are never good enough for us. It's not wise. And then being overly wicked also leads to self-destruction. It costs us to hate. It really costs us to hate. It costs us when we have hate for the people around us, and that could just be showing up in the form of disgust. But it costs us systemically to hate. And so being overly wicked also leads to destruction. And so the place that wisdom guides us is to this place of balance. It says not to, to have this, let go of this grasp or to this grasp, I think is like kind of the notion of what he's saying there. Like, so we're holding on to these things that are like polarizingly pull us, pulling us towards perfection or like total like do whatever we want to. And the place of wisdom that the teacher is telling us is to not move in either direction too far. But to be steadied and balanced between these two pulling forces. And it says, where do we find that steadying balance between these two pulling forces? In the fear of God. Which helps us to avoid these extremes. Unfortunately, the teacher doesn't tell us what that means, the fear of God. He lands the whole book here. We'll get there next week. That wisdom is found in the fear of God. And so I was looking into it. What does it mean to fear God? 
if that's the balancing place between these two polarizing realities that keeps us steady, what does it mean to fear God? And there's a subtle difference between being afraid and fearing. I was listening to a podcast um, by the Bible Project and one of the people on there, John Collins, was talking about this and he was talking about it in light of Genesis 3 and Adam. After Adam is, has eaten from the fruit that God instructed him not to and it was the fruit that was supposed to be able to help um, or the, the fruit of good and evil. And so then he takes this fruit and in that passage it says in Genesis chapter 3 that when God was coming towards um, Adam, after he did that act, that he was afraid of God. Afraid of God. And I think he was afraid of God because he thought that God was going to kill him for that act of disobedience. And then John, when he was talking about this in his podcast, he's like, I think that maybe if Adam had feared God, he wouldn't have eaten the fruit. I was like, oh, that is a really interesting notion of fear. And he said, because perhaps that fear would have given Adam wisdom to discern. And so fearing in this sense that John was talking about in this Bible project um, podcast is a sense that because there is a weightiness and a reverence that comes from being in the presence of something so powerful. And the key is to knowing that God's presence is good. And that's the whole series that we're going to do next. Right? That, that presence that is good, that is inviting us into something that we would steady ourselves in. And it's okay if you don't believe that God is good or that you're struggling with that. We can continue to learn together about the goodness of God. But the fear is that acknowledgement of being in the presence of something so powerful. And so the fear of God is about doing what God says because of that trusting, belonging, homeness in that large presence that is good. And so honoring God's wisdom and authority comes from that place of trust and that place of awe. That this good presence has good for me and so I give in to. That's the fear of God. I have a memory of swimming in the ocean. I like swimming and I'm not really afraid of water. I used to be a lifeguard. And I have this memory of swimming in the ocean and um, there was this entrance to, the, there was like a boat, a place where you could put a boat or a canoe, you know, so it starts out shallow, but it pretty swiftly gets quite deep. So I have my little snorkel set up on because when you take, um, where, where I was, there was this, um, what do you call that stuff that fish go on? Called coral, the coral. I was going out to look at the fish, so I was swimming out there and I go out there, had a little look at all these lovely fish. And then I'm on my way back. And to get back through this section, there were the, to get back to the shore, there was like these rocks. And um, it's, it was kind of the waves and the water. And it was kind of intense. And so 
I was like, all right. So I'm, I have my mask on and I'm trying to swim in and I get to the point where I can't get into shore. But I can't get out either because I'm kind of in this thing that has hold of me called the ocean. And um, I'm like, I, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling a little like, aware of my littleness in this moment. Because as a strong swimmer, I'm not able to get where I need to get to. And I can't, like, I'm, I'm, it feels like in some ways, like I'm fighting this thing that has a hold of me. And so I'm like, you know, start to feel really aware of my situation. Not really happy about the awareness of my situation. And so I um, give in to the ocean. I have to like let the ocean like take me back where it's wanting to go and then I have to move with the ocean to get back into the to the shore you know like I, I'm fighting it and it's not working and so I'm like okay, I have to give into what the movement of this water is doing and eventually like and there were people there I feel like if I you know I could have been yelling or whatever and someone would have probably thrown something into me but I managed to get in And what it meant to be fearful was not because this thing was trying to harm me, but because its presence was powerful. And it served me well to work with that presence. And so the teacher is telling us to avoid these extremes. And, the, and it's not just any kind of wisdom that we're looking for, but it's a wisdom that is learned based in the fear of God. An acknowledgement that there is a power bigger than us that asks us to work with. And in working with that power, we have the discernment to hold steady with these polarizing forces. So my question for you is, how aware are you? How aware are you of the presence of God? What do you do to cultivate that awareness? I want you to think about that this week. Maybe talk about with a friend, like what does it mean to, to, to be held in the powerful presence of God? Do you believe the presence of God is good? And if you don't, why don't you? What do you need to explore about God in order to be able to give yourself to the presence of God? This is participatory. It is not only my job to figure out who God is. It's yours too. How aware are you of God's presence? What do you do to cultivate that awareness? Because as you do, you will be steadied. in the wisdom that is given you to discern.
the teacher finally kind of ends this section with, so I turned my mind to understand, to investigate and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. So here is the teacher. The teacher is investigating the distinction between wisdom and folly and investigating what it means to move towards wisdom to understand the stupidity and wickedness. So there's this, this picture that he's given. There's something that I want to understand about wisdom, and there's something also that is to, good for me to understand about foolishness. And then the teacher goes on to say things that are... Just make you pause a little. The woman, this is what he finds more bitter than death. The woman who is a snare. I'm like, oh no. Oh no, you didn't. Yes, you did. And then he says, you know, I'm trying to find the upright, and all I can find is one upright man and not one upright woman among them. I'm all, whoa. So we're reading this as a staff, and I'm the one reading it out loud, and I'm literally saying out loud, what? What? And then I remembered what I'd read in chapter 9, which, I mean, verse 9 of this same chapter, and it says, Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. And I'm like, I'm going to have to apply verse 9 to verse 27 because I'm feeling a little provoked right here. Teacher, not really loving what you've got to say about women. But all joking aside... Sadly, lots of misogyny comes out of passages like this. A kind of prejudice against women shows up. And that has been true in the church historically, and it is true in the church presently. Luther, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes and what he says about women, is alarming and not okay. And also, a commentary that I read, printed in 2020, was similarly alarming. Said Solomon was the singularly wisest man in all Israel, but not one woman in his harem of a thousand wives and concubines was upright. Instead, they drew him into idolatry, ensnaring him like a sinner. To blame anything on women who were slaves to Solomon is crazy. Especially when he was completely out of bounds in the first place. Based on Deuteronomy 17, he shouldn't even have had a harem. It's not okay. I can do better than that. So I took a deep breath, and instead of being enraged, I decided to get curious. All right, here it is in the text. What is the teacher trying to teach us here? So looking at the context, the context of this passage, or this section is verse 25. And you see here, 
It's talking about wisdom and folly and the teacher wanting to understand wisdom and folly. And so we, when we look at these words in the context of the passage and then proverbial wisdom in general, I think we can make sense of it. Amy Plantagia suggested, like in her passage or in her um, book on this section, is that it's better to read this section in line with Proverbs' female personifications of both wisdom and folly. And I was like, oh, now there, there's some brilliance for you. Because Lady Wisdom is personified. And Lady Wisdom, we're told in Proverbs, is we're told to seek her. That she is woven into the fabric of the universe. And when we see wisdom played out, it's because humans are relying on her. She's just the solid one to get with and have a meal with and like listen to and engage with. Lady Wisdom, let's read it. Proverbs chapter 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out servants and she has called from the highest points of the city. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, come and eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the midst of insight. Dude, think about who that lady is. You just want to run over to her house and get some of her food. She's going to feed you up, fill you up, send you off and you're going to feel all right. Lady Wisdom. Get yourselves in Lady Wisdom house, right? But there is a parody to Lady Wisdom. Lady Folly. You do not want to be in Lady Folly's house. We continue Proverbs chapter 9. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple, knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. She's a snare. She's a trap. And you go to her house and she'll put chains on you. The point of this proverbial insight is that we would embrace Lady Wisdom and that we would avoid Lady Folly. And the thing that the teacher is saying about these two characters in verse 28 is that Lady Wisdom is hard to find. She's a little elusive. So while he's chasing Lady Wisdom, Lady Folly is hot on his heels.
And he wants us to know that that's true for life here on earth. That even lady wisdom is hard to find. I love this teacher so much. He has no problem keeping it real, right? There's a sense of we need to find wisdom. We want to be balanced by wisdom. And then the teacher is like, yeah, but remember, sometimes wisdom is hard to find. And so wisdom is not even the ultimate thing worth chasing after. While it's good and it's helpful and it's rooting and it's grounding, it's not the ultimate thing either. The teacher is saying, yeah, wisdom is better than not having wisdom. But remember that sometimes it's hard to find, so don't formulize this either. Then he concludes... This only have I found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. I think that's the whole point. That humans have gone in search of many schemes. And like Johnny said last week, that none of these things can actually hold the weight of being ultimate the things that we chase after. They can't hold the weight of being ultimate. Not even chasing after wisdom can hold the weight of being ultimate. They crumble under that kind of weight. And so the teacher is telling us that only God can hold that weight. Only God can hold the weight of all of this chaos that is life. From birth to death and everything in between. And so the invitation is to fear God. To relax a little. To rest. To enjoy Because you know that applause reminds you that there are simple things that are worth loving, seeing, being about. To lament when things are sad. And to live. And that we live in that place where we can be steadied. But that steadying takes place in the fear of God. Understanding that there is a presence that's bigger than our own, that's bigger than all of the things that are going around us that can hold us and steady us and move us and direct us. And so ours is to cultivate awareness in that presence. And we have wisdom to guide us along the way. But wisdom too is an ultimate. Wisdom says come and join us at this table and find nourishment. Jesus also says come to this table. And find nourishment. Find grace and find forgiveness. Find love and find belonging. 
by knownness. And so as you take this cup today and this little wafer, be reminded that God's presence isn't just vast and far off, but God's presence comes near to us in the person of Jesus. And that in being connected to God, we have what we need to live, to rest and to enjoy and to lament. That we can come with our complications, we can come with our doubt, we can come with our fear, we can come with our sorrow, we can come with our joy and we can be grounded by the faithful presence of God with us. Monsieur, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this teacher, the teacher who reminds us that a lot of time we kind of chase after things that can't hold the weight of our identities or can't hold the weight of the importance that we place on them. And so this morning, as we just are here together, would you call to mind the things maybe that we're giving too much weight to. Thanks for Lady Wisdom and that Lady Wisdom invites us to her house. But thanks too that this teacher reminds us that wisdom doesn't always mean a particular kind of outcome. And that the end of the day, the place where we find security is in you. And so my prayer is that today, um, we, your people here in Salt Lake City and Missio Day and elsewhere, that we would, we would cultivate an awareness of your presence and your goodness in our midst. That we'd admit when we don't believe that you're good that we would admit when we're afraid of you rather than fearful of you. And that you would replace in us doubt and uncertainty and other things and anxiety and fear, that you would replace that with trust. A trust that we belong with you. So would you do that this week as we talk to our friends about you and pray to you and maybe listen in to who you are. Change us to be a people that fear you so that we can be held by you.